We are continuing in our series in the book of Nehemiah. So if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 5. I'm going to read it out for us now. Nehemiah chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many. Let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, and our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards." I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them, and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that you may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from that time, I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king. Twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. This is God's word. We continue in this story of Nehemiah, and we come to a critical moment of great significance, 
Because this story is addressing a challenge that many people have with following God. The story of Nehemiah is intended to teach us how to rebuild. And of course, that's of great relevance today, isn't it? Our walls are burnt down. Uh, the walls of our society, the walls of our economy, the walls of our countries, all around the world, we're facing a global crisis. We all know that. And so this book is inspired by God to teach us how to rebuild based upon the gospel of God. But you may have questions about that. In particular, as I say, this passage is of great significance, this part of the story in particular, because one question that many people have, and you yourself may have, is what about injustice? What about oppression? What about the poor? And that may be a barrier to you to prevent you from following God. Annie Dilliard, the uh, well-known Pulitzer Prize novelist, wrote one really profound, very brief uh, book called Holy the Firm. And in it, at one point, she describes some of these challenges that many people have with oppression, injustice, suffering, as a barrier to believing in God. And yet, she says, I know enough about God to want to worship God with any means at hand. Or maybe that's you. You want to worship God. And yet there's this barrier of oppression and injustice and poverty. Well, this passage, this story will address that for us. And it does it in three ways. First, uh, the oppressed. Then the oppressors. And then God's leader, the leader that God used. So first then the oppressed, then the oppressors, and then the leader. So first the oppressed. And you'll see in verse 1 that these oppressed people issue a great outcry, as Nehemiah puts it. There, there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against uh, their Jewish brothers. So what's the nature of this oppression that they are sensing? Basically, what's going on is there's a famine, there's an economic crisis, and the poor, those uh, not among the elite, are struggling to survive. And because they're struggling to survive, they're doing whatever they can to put food on the table. Uh, and that means that, well, first of all, they mortgage their houses. They, they take out collateral. They take out money from the bank based upon the collateral that they, they possess, their fields, their vineyards, their houses. And, and they, they run through all that. And they need still more money. Matthew Henry, one of the great um, Christian commentators from the 18th century, says about this passage that people with families, large families, were saying, here are the mouths, the mouths of the children, here are the mouths, where is the meat, where's the food? 
So they mortgaged their houses. And then, uh, in ancient culture, it was possible and sometimes practiced that if you really were stuck financially, there was another thing you could do, and you could sell your children into slavery. And they'd done that. Even some of their daughters. So that their daughters would not starve. So that they would have money so they would not starve. That's a great outcry. Because, and that phrase, outcry, is used deliberately from Nehemiah to reflect a yet earlier part of the Bible story. When God's people were in Egypt, and they were in slavery in Egypt, and they cried out to God for rescue. But here... Now, what Nehemiah is saying, it's not that God's people are in slavery to some foreign power that is dominating them. They're doing what Egypt did to them. They're now doing to each other. Among the people of God, there's oppression and injustice. And there's a great outcry. Maybe you feel oppressed. It's often said that Wheaton is a affluent place. There's a lot of money around, and it is an affluent place. But I know as a pastor that there are also many people who struggle financially. They live paycheck to paycheck. If they have a paycheck, and there's not enough There's too much month at the end of the money. And maybe you feel oppressed. You're working as hard as anyone else. Harder. You've got two jobs. And there are other people who seem like they have plenty of time for a long lunch. And they have far more money than you. And it's not fair. Or or it's not only financial, of course. There's also here a relational division among God's people. Wheaton is also a place where there are many well-established, entrenched families that have known each other for generations. And maybe you feel that you're not one of those families. And you can't, you can't get it. You can't break in. And you feel ostracized, alienated, unwanted. And it's not right. You're, you're also one of God's people. Certainly globally, there is oppression. I remember one man that I came across in another country who had become a Christian in a Muslim country. And when he was in the army of that Muslim country, he was caught reading his Bible and beaten up by other people in that army. Had to leave the army, went back to his home, to his family, who then threw him out the door because he was a Christian, couldn't get a job had to leave the country 
and became stateless, a citizen of no country here in this world. That's oppression. That's injustice. But the good news is, the same way this outcry reminded Nehemiah of the outcry of God's people when they were in slavery in Egypt, in that story, we're told, God heard, he saw, he remembered his covenant. A, a covenant is a committed relationship to which God will be loyal even at his personal cost. He remembered his covenant and he acted. And if you're oppressed and you're crying out to God, he hears and he will act. The oppressed. But then also the oppressors. And uh, Nehemiah confronts uh, these, uh, uh, what, it's the elite, uh, verse 7, it's the nobles and the officials. And to be fair to these, this elite group, the nobles and officials, when they are confronted that they are the oppressors, they, they change. Uh, they, 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 they promise that they will... Uh, They'll put it right, verse 12. Then they said, we will restore these and will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And they, they promise. And then uh, verse 13, not only do they promise, they do what they said they were going to do. And the people did as they had promised. How about you? Perhaps God even this morning, by his spirit, as we've been worshiping together, has put his finger on an area in your life that you need to change. Will you do what they did? Will you promise to change? And will you actually change? It's so easy, isn't it, to have blind spots, to not realize that certain things we're doing have impact on other people and we can inadvertently be damaging other people. It's so easy to have blind spots. Jonathan Edwards, one of the great Christian leaders of America, America's history, uh, the, the heart of the transatlantic revival known as the Great Awakening. His works, are all of them are worth reading. I commend them to you. John Edwards, a great Christian thinker and leader. Edwards also had slaves. Now, to be fair to Edwards, he was clear that any people of any race could be full participant members of the church. But he had slaves. In fact, 
there's a document that he, we have discovered that he wrote in defense, to be, to be notes for him to speak in defense of another minister who had slaves. And Edwards' argument was basically, this is the world we live in, this is the system, there's nothing we can do about it, we need to act the best we can within this system. Now, to be fair to Edwards, at the same time that he was around, non-Christian, atheistic views of people of other races was so abhorrent, Outrageous. David Hume, sometime after Edwards, the great atheistic philosopher, David Hume thought that people of other races from him simply did not have the same rational capacity that people of his own race had. Montesquieu, great secular thinker who wrote one of the textbooks of the rationalistic enlightenment, L'Esprit des Lois, the spirit of the Lord. Montesquieu believed that people of other races from him, he, he questioned whether they were actually human. Well, Edwards knew that we're all made in the image of God. We're all inheritors of, 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 of grace by faith in Christ. He, he knew that we're all part of the church. But Edwards had slaves, and he was wrong. And we must say that. Just as we say, and you know, William Wilberforce, great Christian leader who campaigned against slavery, and Jonathan Edwards' son, Jonathan Edwards Jr., who was an abolitionist and campaigned against slavery, it must have been somehow in Edwards' intellectual DNA, but still he was wrong, and we should say it. And it may be that God, by his Spirit, this morning will put a finger on an area in your life that you need to change. It's easy to make money out of other people's misery. I, I remember at the heart of the 2008 Great Recession, just a year or so later, I was talking to uh, an economic leader about that, and he told me of a conversation he had with a person over in New York City who had been at the heart of some of the misuse of selling of stocks and shares and things like that that went on in the 2008 recession. And he had asked this person, these packages that you put together, would you yourself have bought them? He said, no way. But it's not just economic, it's also spiritual. There is a great poverty spiritual poverty all around us. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you told a non-Christian about Jesus? You know, we come here to church and you know, hear great music and we, we're in this wonderful building. We're part of this, this church of historic substance. And, but it's not just about consuming it's not just about receiving. We need to share our spiritual bread. 
When was the last time you discipled a younger Christian? The oppressed, the oppressors. And then the leader. Of course, the leader is Nehemiah. And once again, he comes across as just an amazing leader. Throughout Nehemiah, he does. And, and once again here, uh, there, there, his leadership here is, is astonishing. There's three elements to it. He, first of all, he hears, verse 6, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. He actually heard. He actually listened. It's so easy as a leader, whether as a parent of your business, of a ministry, of a church, of a college, whatever kind of leadership you have, it's so easy not to hear, to feel like you have to be the person in charge and you have to be right and not listen. Nehemiah heard. And then, verse 7, he says, I took counsel with myself. An interesting phrase. It basically means that he, he thought it out. He got clear in his own mind. How we need that today. I can make a prediction. What kind of opinions I'm going to hear the following week based upon what the cable news channel choice is of various people. And what that means is, we're not thinking. Yes, that's one way of looking at it, but what's the evidence? What's the counter-argument to that? What would someone else who thinks differently say about that? He took counsel with himself. He thought it through until he was clear. So he heard, he thought, and then he acted based upon the fear of God. It says uh, he did this, uh, verse 15, because of the fear of God. How we need leaders like that today who will live not in fear of public opinion, not in fear of the people around, but in fear of of God and what he will say and what he wants. So here we are. It's a barrier to many people. This issue of injustice and poverty to really giving your life to God and committing and rebuilding your life based upon the gospel. And we have the oppressed... God will hear your outcry. He will remember his covenant and he'll act. We have the oppressors. Will you, in the area that God is confronting you this morning by his spirit, will you change? And then we have the leader, the leader that we all want to be. He heard He thought, he took counsel with himself, and he acted in the fear of God. What does it mean to live in the fear of God? One uh, quotation from the theologian J.I. Packer, Jim Packer, a British theologian, spent most of his life in Canada, 
J.I. Packer at one point said that once you realize that all of life is about knowing God, then all the rest of life's problems tend to disappear. That's living in the fear of God. Knowing God, we might add, and I think Packer would agree, making God known, then that becomes your agenda. Everything. I, um, I try to work that out in my own life in, in the following way. I have a set of values that I've written for myself to remind myself on a regular basis what it means as a leader to live in the fear of God. Here are these values that I keep on a document on my phone so I can refer to them. Personal relationship with God in quiet times must never be squeezed out. Being faithful is more important than taking a shortcut to be successful. My family is my first church. The Bible, the Bible is the sole authority and the way God speaks today. The Holy Spirit is the presence and power of God for kingdom expansion. Character, purity, Christ-likeness has greater impact than ministries based on gifting alone. Prayer is the means by which God chooses to bless his work. And then finally, spiritual growth is more important than mere task or goal achievement. Living in the fear of God, that, that knowing God is what life is about and making him known and therefore every other aspect of life's problems tend to disappear. I commend to you to write for your own life a set of values that express that so that you can lead at home in your own life, lead your own life in the fear of God. But who is equal to these things? Only one man. He confronted the Pharisees. Woe unto you, he said. He, a bruised reed did not break and a smoking flax did not put out. He took the sins of the pressed and oppressors on the cross where he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And only in him can we rebuild? Oh Lord God, we pray that we would have your spirit's power at work in us as we seek to rebuild our lives on a, on a daily basis this season. 
We pray, Lord, for those who are oppressed. We pray, Lord, that you would hear their cry and remember your covenant and act in mercy. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be those who reach out to those around us to have mercy. We pray we do it practically, but also spiritually, Lord. Lord, would we have the good news of Jesus on our lips to share with those who don't yet believe in you? Would we disciple and train younger Christians? Would we not just be consumers of the bread of your word, but distributors of the bread of your word too? We pray, Lord, you help us to be leaders who lead in, in the fear of God, in, 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 in the knowledge of you, and lead out of that place. And we pray most of all, that in, in Jesus, Lord, and because of him, and by his spirit, and through the gospel, you would free us to serve you with grace and mercy and love to those around. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.